When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Lucky Lectord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you for a special Christmas edition of the podcast. Tennis fans, it's time to gear up and pick up some stocking stuffers for your fellow tennis fans. And here's the perfect idea. It's a book by Christopher Clary called The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Came out last year. It's very appropriate this year, being that Mr. Federer has retired from the sport. Not a dry eye in the place since Roger hung up his rackets at Labor Cup in September. We have a nice chat with Christopher Clary that's coming up next. We'll talk about his experience writing the book, the challenges, the pitfalls, the many times quality times that he spent with Roger Federer, the many people he interviewed over the course of this book, which really started to germinate in his mind when he first saw Federer at Roland Garros in 1999 when he made his Grand Slam debut. It's an interesting journey. It's an interesting book. And I think you guys will enjoy this conversation. Learn a little more about what's in store for you if you plan on picking up The Master, the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer. Now let's get straight to our interview with Christopher Clary. Chris, pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy that we get to talk a little bit today, just a bit before the holidays. How are you doing, my friend? You know, I'm hanging in there. I'm just spent a little bit of time off the road, Chris, probably like you, uh, after a crazy year, that Australia stuff with Novak, um, and that whole thing began the year kind of uh, in crazy fashion, and, and the year stayed that way pretty much through, you know, Roger Federer's retirement. So it's uh, definitely taking some time with the family and, and um getting a chance to recharge for, I'm sure, what will be another big year coming Excellent. up in 2023. Good stuff. Good stuff. Speaking of Roger Federer's retirement, your book, The Master, now out for over a year, but I see it right now as a perfect stocking stuffer. In fact, I just sent a copy to my sister-in-law in New York. I want to congratulate you on the book. I've done that already, but but uh, do it on the air is, is a little bit different. Um, it was lovely, and, and I got to say, I learned so much there's so many tidbits the whole way through <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm picking up knowledge and, the, you know, the experience, the, the depths you dug out, especially the pre, uh, the youth of Federer all the way back to his formative years. And is that Ecublon where he, where he went to Switzerland, French speaking Switzerland, didn't speak a lick of French back in the day. I mean, there's so much in this book. So I wonder if you could tell me. I have my first question is really about the experience of writing it. What did it reveal to you? What are some of the important lessons that you learned regarding Roger Federer? Well, first of all, Chris, thanks a lot for what you had to say about the book. I mean, it's been really kind of the the project uh, I think that'll stick with me the most from my career, and I've been doing this a long time. It was a it was a real a real challenge, and I, I feel really good about the way people have responded to it and yeah. around the world and different places. So that that's been great. But I would say you know, it was the hardest thing I've done, for sure, because there was just so much material. You know, Roger's been so out there and so accessible for so long. Yeah. And just just you know, little old me. I mean, I had a lot of interviews with him over the years, you know, more than 20 in a lot of different places. And 
and then all the post-match stuff over the years and all the things we saw and all the rivals that were involved and people along the way. So it was just a massive amount of material. People will say the book's kind of long, Chris. <laughs> it yeah, kind of is. It is. It uh, is. But, but in a lot of ways, it was just so much was left on the cutting room floor, too. But to answer your question, I mean, I think there are a couple things. One, the area in his or period in his life that you mentioned, you know, when he's when he's younger and that sort of becoming phase. Yes. Uh, that was something I thought I knew a lot about, but I really didn't. And I think um, all the interviews with people that were involved with him in, at that stage of his life, uh, from Paganini, his fitness trainer, to his boyhood friends um, and guys who grew up with him, like Mika Lammer. Uh, guys that from his childhood that were part of his life all the way through. And then his sports psychologist, Christian Marcoli, who's done very, you know, a few interviews over the years and you know, he's not giving you full disclosure, but it was really interesting to hear his perspective on Roger and what he's become. So that whole kind of period there where it was kind of hanging in the balance, it was clear he was going to be a, you know, a great talent. Was he going to be an all time great tennis player? Really? That was far, far from certain and far, far from a, a given based on his mentality and, and temperament and a lot of the uh, angst and perfectionist streak that was causing him so much trouble in terms of managing his emotions. So the whole process of how he managed to do that to me was fascinating. And to go back and talk to people about how they built his game kind of brick by brick, um, the forehand side, the coaches who were in Ecublon at the training center yes. that you mentioned, even Peter Lundgren, who was first pro coach really out on the circuit, um, talking about the things they had to fix and things they really were focused on. And, um, that I really, I really got a lot out of, but it kind of on a macro basis, I would say really, I think Roger's gift beyond tennis is just the guy's ability to embrace the everyday, the things that you really are going to have to do. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to do your taxes. Yeah. You're going to have to go out, you know, mow the lawn. If you have one, you're gonna, all these things you're going to have to do. And honestly, you know, tennis is full of those too on the pro level between sponsorship, meet and greets, between interviews, between, Jet lag, travel, hotels, da, da 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 those sorts of things. It can sound glamorous for a week, but it's not glamorous at all for 25 years. Yeah. And the guy, I have to say, I mean, that really is one of my biggest takeaways on a personal level was just how he, if you're going to do it, you know, do it full on and do it well. Yeah. Don't drag your feet. And I've seen so many big time athletes drag their feet in some of those sectors over the years. Yeah. It's just, I think, quite rare. He was able to pull that together. And I think it's really one of the big secrets to his longevity and his success was that he really was able to get um, positive energy out of almost everything that he touched in tennis. Yeah, very good. Uh, there's a quote from you. It says, uh, "Classic. this was classic conversational Federer, ebullient and rambling with a penchant for recreating past dialogues, including internal dialogue. Can you talk to me about a little bit about Federer, the conversationalist, as you've experienced him? Well, there's sort of two, right? I think the way things have played out, I mean, you have the conversationalist when he's on the stage right. doing a press conference or, uh, you know, something where he's he's clearly in the spotlight on camera. And there over the years, I think he's become pretty polished. I mean, he still has that, you know, in English, he will sometimes ramble on even in that mode. But when you get him just one-on-one -on -one, talking to him in a uh, you know, hotel lobby or backseat of a car if you're traveling around or over lunch, you know, he really, uh, he's a storyteller, but he kind of does it his own way. He's, he definitely likes to go off with these long riffs about what he was thinking and sort of he does his own voice like, well, I was saying to myself this and, 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 and I was thinking that and then I was in the middle of the point. I was going, well, Roger, should I do that? So there's a lot of that sort of self-referential, what, what he was thinking at the time. And so that kind of gives it a lot of flavor. 
But sometimes you have to, you know, when you're trying to quote him directly on the printed page, it can be tricky because he just he goes off on all these tangents. You almost need to paraphrase him. But that was one of the challenges of the book is I had a lot, a lot of you know, rambling, interesting Roger. But to kind of pare it down and use it the best way was sometimes challenging. And um, but I love his spontaneity and his enthusiasm. And it, it all comes from that place where he's he's just kind of uh, in pleaser mode. He wants to make it a good experience for you and for him. And that's that sort of comes through in the way he communicates. Yeah. Good parenting must be right. You know, I think his parents did a great job. Um they certainly aren't the only ones in tennis. I mean, no, for sure. Others, others have done good jobs too along the way. I kind of always like the way the Sampras's approached it as well uh, back in the day and, and their time. And I've seen um, an awful lot of horror shows too, Chris, as I'm sure you have as well. <laughs> so it's it's great to see, you know, they had their feet on the ground as parents. They did get involved a lot in his career, both his mom and his dad, at different times. As you might remember, they were running the show basically with Roger. He had no agent for a while back there when he first hit number one, and which was pretty extraordinary. But they took on a lot of load there, been involved with his foundation. But I think in the formative years, they put the emphasis on respecting other people, on you know taking a time to connect with people from all walks of life that you would cross your paths and uh, along the way. And I think he was. I think his parents put their foot down at different times too about his behavior on court. It just took a long time for him to sort it through. I mean, there's a story of his dad basically ending a hitting session with his son because his dad's a recreational player like his mom. And basically Roger was just going crazy and he just stopped the session, slapped a coin down on the bench and left. Yes. Basically the, the coin was his way of getting back from the, <laughs> from the, the practice session back home because he wasn't going to drive him. Yeah. And then there's the famous story of him burying his head in the snow. <laughs> when they came back from a tournament because which isn't very kosher probably in the era we're living in now but <laughs> at that point it was i guess tough love and he just got tired of roger just complaining and going off and he just basically wanted to cool him down so stops the car and puts his head in the snow um so <laughs> is that good parenting is that tough parenting? Oh, yeah, right. I, I just think in general you know roger was not god's gift to his parents and they had another child as well he had his sister and and they were determined to you know raise him the kind of the way they've been raised too. Mm. So I, I, that's my impression. And, and he certainly can feel that. And, but I also know it took him a long time to kind of get his act together. He was not a, uh, a model citizen through his youth. Yeah. That's, and that's fascinating. Maybe, maybe and inspiring about Federer is just how difficult it was for him to harness all his creative power and artistry and to put it into a championship profile. And you mentioned the sports psychologist. I mean, we're talking about Christian uh, Markley, I think is how you pronounced it. He, Federer was uh, not yet 17 when he worked with a sports psychologist. And, and I mean, we're, at that point, it was seen as maybe a sign of vulnerability. So it took some courage and some wisdom to go that path. Yeah, I think in the U.S. there's a bit more of a, of a move toward that. But in Switzerland, it was really quite rare when Roger was still in his teens. And, and Marcoli's interesting because he was a, a soccer player, a pro player with FC Basel, which is you know Roger's hometown uh, soccer club. And, um, and a good one. And Marcoli was a guy who had great talent, but he ended up getting hurt and couldn't fulfill his potential. And so he decided to convert to, um, you know, sports psychology, performance psychology. And he's worked with business as well as sport, lots of different things. But at that stage, he was very young, just getting started. And, and Peter Carter, Rogers, uh, you know, boyhood coach in Basel, knew there was a problem that needed to get resolved. I think Roger accepted it as well. They heard about this guy, um, and I think the FC Basel connection and his youth made Peter Carter think, huh, okay. Right now, Roger's going to relate well to another young athlete. 
And yeah. so in a way, they kind of learned their crafts together, Christian and, and Roger through this. Now, there hasn't been a huge amount of detail that's come out about that because I know there's, you know, non-disclosure agreements and that's part of the respect that Marcoli has for Federer. But he definitely talks about how far Roger had to come and and the tools they had to find to help him really produce his best tennis by concentrating and staying in the moment on the court. Stuff like, you know, where his eyes were going to go. They got very detailed about it, very granular. Yeah. And, and above all, just about sort of, I think, expectation. And Roger's a sensitive person. We can all see that, you know, when you watch him in tears after victories or defeats. He keeps it under wraps pretty tightly, which is kind of amazing. But clearly, that's that's the kind of person that he is. He's emotive. Yeah. So they had to find a way to, to solve that. And I think um, it was probably, if you listen to Roger a five or six year process and Mark Holy was with him for, I think a little over two and he certainly played a big role, but when they finished, he wasn't the, uh, the finished product in that at all. It had to come from him eventually. Yeah. Sounds like a, a struggle that Andre Rublev might know a few things about. <laughs> That's true. That's a good one. <laughs> Maybe Marcoli should get on speed yeah, for Rublev. I don't it's know. It's taken Andre a little while too, but but he's but he's he knows it's an issue, and that's I guess that's part of the key. But you mentioned Chris some um, interviews with Roger over the years, hotel lobbies, etc. A couple that struck me in the book are uh, the private jet heading over to Laver Cup, and also a moment, a, a funny moment with Mirka trying on sunglasses in Paris while you're talking to Roger. What are some of the most interesting spots that you've talked to Roger in for this book or, or just in general? You know, it's, you, you think back on it, they're over, over to almost 20 years, you can find yourself in all kinds of different settings. I mean, a lot of it's just happenstance, but there have been a, you know, a couple of times when, when I really remember, and I personally, I really treasure was right after his, his twin girls were born in 2009. It had been that amazing season for him, you know, when, he started the year in tears, losing in Australia to Rafa, ends up winning the French because Rafa loses to Soderling, then comes back and ends up breaking the record against uh, winning against Roddick at Wimbledon. So it was just an incredible year for him in so many ways. And then his, his children were born, and I got a call from uh, Roger's team to you know, come do an interview with him uh, by Lake Zurich right near where he lived. And so I basically ended my vacation overnight, caught a train, or maybe it was even a plane. It was a plane and a train to get to him ended up having lunch on this big veranda looking out over the lake. And wow. he was just, I've rarely seen anybody at any part of my life about anything as happy as he was that day. Yeah. It was just kind of top of the world, beautiful sunny day in Switzerland, view of the lake, view of the mountains. And he was talking about already about putting his twins on a plane and heading to Canada to restart his career. They only been they're about seven, seven, eight days old. And I'm like, Mirka really wants to do this? And he goes, yeah, Mirka's pushing me, which he wants me to go. So I think at that point, I really realized that he really had the long haul in mind. I mean, we people were thinking he had achieved all he really needed to achieve, but that conversation really debunked that myth right away in my head. It was, you could just see how much he wanted to get back out there and, and kind of live this life with his new family, his bigger family now. And, and you could sense that Mirka was, you know, all in. Mm-hmm. Then, as, then as all along, and, and she's been critical to the whole the whole process and the whole project and and the emotions in London were very very cool to see how that all kind of came to a head there when he finally did retire yeah and and as far as Mirka goes you got to know her obviously pretty well over the last 20 years and and her impact on Roger what would you say is the key element what would you say the key role is that she played and how just how important has she been in the evolution of Federer well, Chris, I wish I got to know her better. I, I really didn't. I mean, she's they, they basically decided as a couple 
once they got married and we're going to have a family that, that, that they were going to shut things down in terms of America's access to the press, yeah. which is funny because in the early years, she was this press liaison when she stopped uh, because of injuries, her own pro career. And she was a, a top hundred player and would have gone a lot higher except for the foot problems that she had. I mean, basically when she stopped, um, I think they were together and I think Roger helped her transition in a way by keeping her involved with his team. And, and she was the one you'd text to get chance to interview roger was hey mirka you know yeah. what's roger's availability <laughs> and she was very you know very present and and then they basically for the last 15 16 years there hasn't been much exposure at all i've, I've maybe spoken exchange with her just a couple times in that period mm-hmm. but you know for the book and and covering his career i mean talked to many people about right what, what role she has played and and clearly she is i have to say the most important person in his later career for sure because i don't think he would have kept playing without her approval and support and she's certainly one of the three people i think that are most pivotal to his career you know with peter carter and uh his boyhood coach pierre paganini his fitness coach and and america so i think the fact that she was a former player who didn't get to realize her own dreams on court uh, her own career was cut short and she's a very motivated uh, driven person. I think uh, she channeled for a time, a lot of her own energy into Roger's career and to making sure he could maximize what he could be. Yes. And he's talked, you know, very openly about that in some of our interviews about how she was basically living um, vicariously. But he said that as time went on, that, that dissipated and that really wasn't what was happening later on. I think it was more just a case of them having built a life on the road with all their friends and all their connections. And, and they obviously can do it in great style with the means that they have. Um, but ultimately they, they have this, uh, love of the road, both of them and love of, of, of adventure and, and the kids were raised in that environment. So I think the whole family for a good long time embraced it. And I think Mirka you know, took on the role of, of matriarch there and, and counselor on occasion to Roger still about his tennis until the, until the very end. And when you spoke with Federer, the, the conversation you just alluded to in 2009, had you already had plans to write this book or, or were you just on another mission. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, honestly, I always felt like it was going to be uh, something that uh, maybe by the time he finished his career be a possibility, but I wasn't really thinking about it seriously. And I think what ultimately what, what made it happen was that as we got down near the end of his time on tour and the 17, 18, 19 after his comeback and success for whatever reason, I've, you know, New York times connection for sure was a big, big part of it, but also the personal connection that had gotten established over time. We just spent a, a really large amount of time in interviews together. And a lot of the interviews turned into two, two and a half hour conversations. So, um, there was just so much material and I felt like Roger was going to finish his career before, um, Novak and, and Rafa would finish theirs. That was pretty clear. And I felt like after he lost the final to Djokovic at Wimbledon in 19, you know, the main body of his work was done. And I knew at some point he's going to do an autobiography and I can't be part of that as a New York times writer. So I felt like it was a good 
get to work on it and, and try to make it happen because mm-hmm. it was such a precious opportunity that I had um, over those years to have had that you know, regular chance to sit down with him. Yeah. And, and that kind of a level of athlete, I, I don't think it's going to be happening in the future. I think for people who are print journalists, I think it's just because of Instagram and whatever's going to follow on Instagram down the road, Chris, you're just not going to get that kind of access to people like that. Yeah. So it, I felt like I would be kicking myself all the way to retirement if I didn't do it. Uh-huh. And, and when did it crystallize, if I may ask, then that, that you officially said, okay, I, I need to lock down a deal for this book and start working on it? It was uh, end, end of 19. Oh, okay. So in the wake of the Wimbledon match um, with, with Novak, I, I just felt like that was going to be a signpost for him. And I just, I just sensed that it was going to be harder for him to really challenge um, Novak the way he was going and the younger guys were rising. But I just, I just, I just felt like for me, I, I think that voice in my head, to be honest, that we all have them about different things. I just didn't want to not get a chance to try to chronicle Roger and this period in men's tennis. Mm-hmm. I feel like I really had had a ringside seat to it for a long time. Yeah. You mentioned uh, uh, your first glance of Federer, maybe not your first glance, but you mentioned 1999 Roland Garros being, being there and watching him make his debut, I believe. You say yeah, his grand, his grand Slam debut against Patrick Rafter on the Long Glen Court. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And he said he, he held your interest then. He never let go of it. What, what do you think, even in your wildest dreams, you would have imagined for Federer back then, you know, sitting in the sitting in the stands on Long Glen and uh, scribing away about Roger Federer? Well, all I knew was that, you know, those are pre-social media days, so you didn't get a look at people really before. I mean, now you're going to get snippets of you get the Fruvertovas coming up, you know, the sisters from Czech. You're going to have seen them before you go watch them. You're going to have YouTube. guys, guys are going to, exactly. You're going to hear about these players. You're going to go check them out. I mean, I remember looking at Alcaraz videos a few years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, the visibility because the technology has just changed. Um, back then it was kind of, you did, to get a look at players before they really made it big, wasn't always easy to do. You sometimes hit, and there wasn't coverage of these uh, smaller events on TV that you could get to. Or So my first look at Roger on a tennis court, I didn't see him play the Wimbledon final in juniors. I saw him in press after he won it, but I didn't watch the match. Okay. But I did definitely see uh, all the match against Rafter. And that was my first look at him. And I had agents tell me, go watch this guy and, and you can trust us because we don't represent him. So head on out there and take a look because I think he's going to be special. Yep. So you went out and watched it. And for sure, you could see the shot making was there. You could see the panache. Yeah. You could see also <laughs> some bad attitude. Chucked a racket, had the hat on backwards. Yeah, he looked a little <laughs> cocky. He won, a, won the first set against Rafter, and then he basically just imploded because of the precision that Rafter brought on him. But you can certainly see a spark. But from that, you know, to say 20 grand slams, over 100 tour titles, beloved worldwide, huge mark on sport, not just tennis. No, no way in a million years could you have known that. And even when I finally had a, for me, like a, a minor vision, which I hardly ever have, which was in Basel a couple of years later when he played Davis Cup against us and destroyed a, a decent team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew then that he'd be number one at some point and he could win Wimbledon multiple times. Yeah. But that seemed like a great outcome. He went far beyond that. And did he maximize his talent? I don't know. Maybe not because the early years, maybe he did not. But I think in terms of, you know, having a, a clean sheet of a long career with all sorts of great highs to mix in with some really powerful lows. I mean, he did it right. And, uh, and there's no way I think at that point early in his career, based on the guys that were also part of that generation, 
And Leighton Hugh was number one as a teenager, and he was part of Roger's generation. He had guys like Ferrero and Roddick, guys who were very, you know, driven great players. Murat Safin, who could have got his head together and been great. So I think it was very tough to know that Roger would be the best of all those guys and then, you know, be the leader for a long time of this great generation. Yeah, set the tone for the big three era, really. And I wonder what you make of the difference in age between Roger, Rafa, and Novak and how maybe early on it was to the advantage of Federer. He was more experienced, more mature, and then later into his 30s it became sort of a deficit where especially against Novak, obviously he turned the tides against against uh, Rafa. But you know, how do, how do you look at and compare Roger to the other two members of the big three personally in with that that age difference in mind you know chris to your point that's really interesting I, I hadn't thought about it quite that way before but it's i think you know the recency bias isn't playing in roger's favor right now because clearly we've you know seen him take some big hits from novak in particular you know yes. in the later stages of his career uh, actually he ended up doing great against rafa near the end of his career roger did which was a, a real shift in tone rafa did a lot of his beatings <laughs> of roger earlier on yes in many ways but I do think it'll be I'll be curious to see 20, 25 years from now when people talk about this era, you know, how they position things, because clearly Roger did have an advantage, especially against Novak um, early on um, in terms of what he was able to bring to the table at his peak. And then uh, Novak pretty much had his number by the end. And, and I do think he paid a price for being on the back end of his career against these great talents who were five years younger, which is what Rafa and Novak are. And you can put Murray in there as well, who's had some success against Roger. Yes. So I don't know, 20, 25 years, you look at the whole era, whether people will no longer have that recency bias and maybe look at Roger in a different light. And a lot of it's going to depend, of course, you know, on what uh, Novak and Rafa end up doing in the next couple of years. Yes. How, how far out they blow the the record on the, on the, on the slams. And, you know, if Roger's record uh, and Connors has the record most, ATP tour titles, but Roger's right behind him. And if that number stays above Novak and Rafa, I personally doubt it will. But if it does, you know, hey, uh, he may be viewed as somebody really on equal footing with them. Right. And then you got the Wimbledon titles as well. And you have a sense that Novak, if everything goes well, could close that one out as well. But if he doesn't, that'll be Roger's domain uh, in the history books as well. So it may look a little different and he may look a bit stronger than he looks right now, yes. 20, 25 years from now. But um, as he said to me once, ultimately, and I, I think he was being genuine, ultimately holding the records forever or for a long, long time isn't as important to me as getting them in the first place. Yeah. Because ultimately that adrenaline rush, that meaning that you get from that, it really, 90% of it comes in the moment or the immediate aftermath. Down the track, a long way, maybe when you're Roger, Rafa, Novak are all crotchety in the center court uh, royal box there, it'll there'll be some joy in being able to compare and contrast for those guys then. Yeah. But at this stage, I think having done it is more important than still holding it. Yeah. He's, he's not even thinking about that 2019 Wimbledon final probably. Right. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that one. I mean, that, that's how your book ends, right? He's, he's caravanning with the kids a couple of days after just shaking it off and getting on to the next phase. And, and I wanted to ask you this, Roger Federer's career is, is important as a player. Now that he's retired, I get the feeling that we might see something different in terms of a retiring pro staying relevant and being still be well-loved and still be visible. Do you get the feeling that Federer 
post-retirement is going to play a role in, in our tennis world, maybe more than other recently retired athletes have? I do think so. I mean, I think he could be kind of like a Pelé kind of figure in, in soccer, you know, where he's really a, a person who he enjoys the contact with people. He's, a, he's an extrovert, at least most of the time. He really likes that. He's got long, long-term deals with the sponsors, and he yes, values yes. those. And that's kind of, you know, the more visible he is, the better for them. And he has a lot of them. And um, I think he's also somebody who uh, wants to use his platform to, for things he cares about. I don't think he wants to sit back and, and just ski with the kids and go for hikes in the summertime and count his money and make some back you know backroom deals. I think he's somebody who wants to be out there creating change. I think he's basically picked the brain of Bill Gates and um, other people that are extremely wealthy in people. And I know um, uh, Bernard Arnault, who runs LVMH, is the wealthiest man in the world right now, ahead of Elon Musk, I guess this last week. Somebody Roger knows very well. So these are people that Roger's had a chance to spend a lot of time with. So I think he's trying to was trying to study you know, how he was going to use his foundation, which is obviously on a much, much more minor key than those things. But he has it. He has an opportunity here and he knows it. I think he wants to use it for, you know, for positive, both for the wider world and for sport. Whether he'll run out of steam or his personal issues with his own family and running that that whole ship will take over most of the energy. I don't know, but I know his intention, from what I can tell, is is to keep playing a role in the public sphere. And he just was back in New York, I guess, doing did Trevor Noah's show. Was Trevor Noah kind of signed off and did a bunch of appearances? And basically, he's been retired for what three months? Yeah, already surfacing. And a lot of you know great athletes wouldn't be out there in public eye again so soon. So I, I think that gives you a hint of what he'll be up to. Yeah. And last question for you, Chris, about the book. Um, you interviewed several hundreds of of sources for this book that you, you interviewed either one-on-one -on -one or in press conference and whatnot. I, I wonder if there was anybody who you talked to or maybe a few names that you talked to who, who struck you as like surprisingly insightful that you got something from them that maybe you weren't expecting or something to, to that, in that effect. Yeah, one guy I really found interesting was a, a, a coach named Christoph Freiss, who was part of that um, Ecu Blanc okay. team. Uh, and he, he Frenchman, was a, a good pro, but he was not a great pro. Had some good, had some good wins. But his his sort of approach uh, with me about sort of talking through Rogers' challenges at age, uh, you know, 14, 15, and what what his game looked like, what he could do and couldn't do, and above all, sort of what it was like trying to coach him and, and talk to him. And Christoph wasn't the day-to-day -day guy. He was sort of this supervisor, but he spent a lot of time with Roger. And and he said, basically, it was it was crazy because you'd, you'd be next to him and, and try to explain something to him, and, and his eyes would be darting all over the place, and he'd have all this nervous energy. It was like all he could do just to sort of stand in place and listen to what you were saying. <laughs> he says, you're almost better off trying to talk to him while you were moving. You know, you guys yeah. both both moving together in some way <laughs> kinetic. And in a sense, it's like this sort of distilled Roger at that age where he was at this almost hyperactive personality. And it's so funny to compare that with the 30 something guy that he became who was, you know, legs crossed, pretty debonair in his tennis way, sit down, have a long chat. Really, he really changed a lot. You know, it's and I think that that conversation with Christoph. Freyce really brought that home for me. 
and he was a guy I'd, I had never spoken with before for any reason. So to get that kind of insight yeah, and also just into how they, they built the back end and, and the things they were working on sort of day to day. I really enjoyed those conversations. I feel like I really got a lot of insight into how much of a progress Roger made on a personal level and, but also where that energy, that flame in him that obviously was burning brightly for a long, long time and really was another key to his success where it came from. Yeah. And it was that hyperactive, you know, maybe even a ADHD kind of kind of youth who was just basically trying his best to manage all this stuff going on inside of him. And like so many teenagers was struggling and yeah. then it all worked out. So it's uh, it's a cool story for that reason alone. Yeah, it's a, that's a fascinating part of your book and a fascinating part of the Federer story. I mean, Peter Peter Carter, Peter Lundgren are like tip of the iceberg. There's so many names and, and, and stories that you bring in there that give you insight into, into you know where he came from and what his struggles were. It's uh, it's it's a cool story. It's cool like, that he's able to get, go from this kind of um, I don't know immature, almost punkish type of young kid. You know, just too much bundle of energy and just able to put it all together and become what he became. It's fascinating. And, and congratulations, Chris, because the book is great. And I want to thank you for your hard work, working on it, putting it together, bringing it to the public. And, and, and I want to ask you this, another book, or was it just too much to do one book? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Chris, as, as a fellow writer, you know what, it, you know, the pain involved in all this in some ways, sweet pain or painful sweetness, whatever it is, you know, um, I definitely want to write some more books for cool. sure. When that's going to be, I don't know. I, I think this, the thing that surprised me about, about book writing thing was that there's the research and then there's the writing. And that to me seemed like that was the whole game. Yeah. But no, it's not. Actually, the, the other part of the game, if you want your book to succeed and the word to get out is you do an awful lot of talking about it afterward. Yeah. So you better damn well be sure you love your subject and yep. like, like what you're talking about because you're going to talk about it a lot. <laughs> and, if you, and if you get that opportunity, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had, things like this today it means the books you know getting out there and, and finding an audience all that's great but that that part is <laughs> it's pretty demanding too so uh, i think when you want to do one and i definitely want to do another one you, you know you're, you're signing up for a, a two or three year process really to to do it right and uh it takes a lot of energy cool yeah, for sure. Um, energy well spent and looking forward to the next one, Chris. And thanks so much for your time. And, and um, we'll be sure to make sure any any of our listeners who haven't gotten the book yet, will we'll make sure to use it as a stocking stuffer for Christmas 2022. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And I'm sure we're going to update it too after his retirement at some point. So that, that'll be coming down the track. But really appreciate your interest. And I, I wish you the best of the holidays. Yeah, thanks. And, and last thing, where, where would you where would you send people who want to pick up the book? Like I always try to say from my own point of view, I, I just love independent bookstores yes. and value them so much. You're going to pay a little bit more, but what a, what a great thing in your community to have that. Uh, I know the, the two places I know best, Newburyport, Mass and Coronado, California, or two places where I've lived a lot of my life. Um, both have independent bookstores that I'm very grateful for. So okay. by all means, if you can do that, but if not, there's always, you know, the great virtual store of the Amazon sky that's there for you. And I've got the beautiful hardcover in, in English, but there's also paperback and there's also several languages. Am I not mistaken? That's been one of the coolest thing. You know, for somebody like me, I'm married to a French woman uh-huh. that lived a lot of my life overseas. The book really has done most of its, you know, reached most of its audience internationally. And I think we're at now it's in 19 languages. Wow. So it's been, that's been really cool to see. That's amazing. 
Very cool, Chris. Well, thanks again for your time. Wish you all the best, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay, Chris. All the best to you. Thanks. This edition of the Lucky Lead Cord Podcast is a wrap. You heard it from Mr. Christopher Clary right there. 19 different languages. No matter no matter your language of preference, there's a copy for the master out there for you. Pick it up. Enjoy your holidays. We'll be back on board after Christmas to preview the 2023 test season. Thanks for listening and have a great holiday. <laughs>